What's up, everybody? My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you are tuned in to the 100th episode of Kinda Neat. We finally did it. Hey! I don't know what else is in the room clapping. That's fine. Uh, it took us a little longer than it should have. Like, we probably should have hit 100 episodes in 100 weeks, if my math serves me correct, uh, which means that it should have been last year, but that's okay. We got here. We still got to 100 episodes, and, and we're still going, and that's that's something. And on our 100th episode, we talked to Daddy Kev, who is one of the guys that helps make this show happen. Without the space that he has created at Cosmic Zoo in Atwater Village, we would not be able to do this show, uh, or, or at least we would not be able to do this show with the amount of quality and precision that we are able to do because of the studio that he has set up here. But beyond that, Daddy Kev is just... He's a person in L.A. that is such a connector, such a catalyst for so many various movements and projects that have happened. And he's a mentor to so many people, including myself. And so we just wanted to take our 100th episode to like hear the story of the guy that helps make this show happen and the guy that makes so many other things in Los Angeles happen, including Low End Theory, uh, including Alpha Pup Records, and, and dozens and dozens of other things that some of you guys probably enjoy. First things first. It has been 100 episodes, like I just said, and we are coming up on our three-year anniversary. So Ben and I are going to ask for you guys' help. We have started a Patreon, uh, a pledge drive on Patreon, and Patreon is basically a website upon which you can pledge money uh, either by the month or per episode. That's the choice that we make, but I'm going to choose to – I'm going to – make it per episode so basically if you like our show and you want it to remain commercial free as it has always been um and you want to help us with our overhead and you want to put some extra money in our pocket because we work very hard to bring you guys free content every week then you can go to patreon.com and search for kind of neat and basically you just pledge an amount of money per episode my hopes, I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth. My hope is that I can get like 200 people to pledge a dollar per episode. That would help with the show so much uh, because it would just be a little less stress for us. And it would help pay the bills around the studio a little better, which is never a bad thing. I'm not telling you that you have to go do it. It's optional. The show's always going to remain free. Um, I'm hoping that the show can always remain uh commercial free the youtube shit i'll tell you it just doesn't really make us any money and it's starting to be something where you know ben and i are pretty much breaking even every month and i'm not trying to be all woe is me i'm just like trying to put some money in our pockets to be honest and so we love you guys and we love the support that you guys have given us and and we just hope that uh we'll see a little bit of that love back no harm no foul if you don't pledge it's fine it's fine i don't know how it's gonna work i'm excited to see how it's gonna work uh we're gonna let it run and just see what happens you know it's 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 always it feels it's weird i get like a little butterflies in my stomach thinking about like i'm nervous as to whether or not anyone's gonna show up to the patreon party but we shall see anyway yeah go to patreon.com pledge a couple bucks it would be a major help and uh Last episode with Dizzy Wright, you heard me talking about the fact that I was going to be headed to Mammoth to go snowboard, and I did, and it was already like almost a month ago now, for Christ's sakes, 
we're waiting so we waited uh, too long to put this episode out that's fine though and it was good i woke up so early anytime that i'm going on a snowboard trip i wake up at like five in the morning like it's christmas or something and i was like so excited i was like just laying in bed rolling around going like i should just leave now i should just leave now even though i couldn't check into the the cabin that we got until like four o'clock anyways so i ended up getting on the road at seven and i'm like damn near there at like pff, noon or something i'm like so close i had already passed bishop and after you pass bishop on the way to mammoth you're like almost there and so i'm fucking flying dude there's no traffic and i'm just cruising and all of a sudden i see a car up in the distance pulled over to the side and i go oh fuck that doesn't look like a cop car but it probably is and i look down and um i'm going 84 or 85 maybe and i like kind of hit my brakes and panic and then all of a sudden, of course, those lights come on. I end up getting a goddamn speeding ticket. But the cop was cool. You know, I tried to I tried to talk my way out of it. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just driving out here and my car is so small. And I, I heard there's a storm coming. So I'm trying to beat the storm. So I apologize for driving so fast. He's like, well, that's no excuse. You were doing 84 and a 65. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll knock it down to 80. Um, it's cause that's the lowest tier in, in, of, of fee or whatever. So at least he gave me, I guess a little bit of, of a kickback, but still it's expensive as shit. And I got a parking ticket or I got a uh, speeding ticket and I haven't had one of those in like almost six years. So I'm bummed about that. Now I got to take driver's ed school and all that bullshit. But while we were at Mammoth, crazily enough, particularly now in hindsight, because of how fucking hot it's been. But while we were there, it snowed four feet in like three nights or three days. Got there on a Friday, stayed Saturday, Sunday, and left on Monday. And by the time I was leaving on Monday morning, my car was buried literally in four feet of snow. And I had to dig it out. And I haven't seen that much snow in forever. Like, I don't think Mammoth has seen that much snow in forever. Uh, the only problem with that is that most people that don't ski or snowboard, they think like, oh, if you go and it starts snowing, those are the best conditions to, to ride in. Like, you're so lucky it's going to snow. Truth be told is that you want to try to get there the day after it snows when you've got all that fresh snow and you try to get out there in the morning early. Yeah, the best time to, to ride is what they call a bluebird day where it's like stop snowing and the next day the sky is clear. So while we are there, it's dumping the whole fucking time and on saturday that first day there were also gusts of wind like 35 to 40 miles an hour so that combined with the snow equals pretty much zero visibility so about three quarters of the lifts were closed on the mountain and so you're paying like full price for these lift tickets and you really only get to ride like one or two lifts the whole day which kind of sucks but at the same time my friend and i we found like some pretty cool tree runs and and while some of the day was an absolute bitch, some of the runs were like the best that I've ever had in my life, like perfectly fresh tracks through the trees that, that just these virgin, beautiful powder tracks. It was so awesome. Uh, the other thing that happened there is that uh, the coolies went with us. You guys, if you pay attention, you know who my homie Dom is and his three kids that are my little nephews. Um, and Gavin, the middle kid, he is eight now. He turned eight the day while we were there. Like Friday was his birthday uh, or that Friday was his birthday. And um, it was only his second time snowboarding. And the first day he couldn't go out because the conditions were so extreme. But the second day it eased up just a little bit. Like the wind stopped. So it was only just snowing. And we took him out and... I swear by the end of the day, he got so good so fast that like by the end of the day, it wasn't like, oh, cute. I, I have my little nephew that I can snowboard with. It was like, 
it wasn't like having a little kid that I was snowboarding with. It was just like having a friend that was like good enough to keep up. It, it was so crazy how fast he picked it up. It, it was uh, it was really awesome. And so I'm stoked that now it's going to be something that we can go do. It, I don't know. I'm just hyped that like we have an activity that that he's hyped on and that I'm that I've been hyped on since I was his age that we can share in. Uh, he you know riding up the lift, he'd be like, "Oh, Uncle Lee, this is so amazing!" Like. I think I want to buy a house here when I get older. And I'm like, keep dreaming, young man, because the housing market is too terrible for that. But yeah, so overall, the mammoth trip was cool other than the fact I got a goddamn speeding ticket. Son of a bitch. So yeah, now I've been home for a couple of weeks and it, the year's off to a slow start. I'll be honest. I haven't really had much work in the last couple weeks or month. I mean, the first two months, barely any work, to be honest, which is cool, but which also kind of sucks. It's cool because... I save enough money. I've saved money and put away money to where I'm like not panicking about not having any income right now. But at the same time, I go, I get a little stir crazy and I go a little nuts when I don't have busy hands. Like I like to stay busy so I don't have to think about all my, all my mental shit, all my depression and anxiety and stuff. Like when I'm busy, I don't have any of that stuff. So in in order to like remain busy during those times, I've just been, you know, going to the gym when it's hot out i've been to the beach a couple times try to go on some hikes and shit you know real stereotypical la um fuck boy shit i guess but that's okay when you're not busy you got to make yourself busy so anyway in summary we made it to 100 episodes i'm so grateful that you guys have stayed along in the journey with me i'm so thankful for the youtube community that we have created i feel like it's such a positive uh fucking youtube community uh as opposed to a lot of the other youtube communities that i have seen i think like you know even when we get like the random asshole who's like man fuck this this guy sucks you know I, we get dozens of other people coming in and saying like hey man Music doesn't suck. It's objective and uh, or it's it's subjective and, and uh, it's just not for you, man. And I'm like, I am proud of my young Padawan music listeners. Thank you for sticking up for what we believe in on YouTube. Um, and so, yeah, all that being all, all that to say, if you like the podcast, if you like the YouTube video, go to the Patreon, kick in a couple bucks. Uh, it, it will go a very far away for us, and we appreciate that. Um, so now we're going to get into the conversation with my man, Daddy Kev. And like I was just talking about a second ago about trying to like stay busy and stay motivated, this is a dude who doesn't have any problem with that, and we kind of get into that. Uh, I've always been curious how, how he um, kind of – he balances and juggles so many things between being a record label owner, being a studio uh, owner and a mastering engineer and mixing engineer. Like he's amazing at, at both of those things, but also finding time to find new artists, put new artists on, um, you know, he's not the reason, but definitely a part of the reason that some of your favorite musicians are in your fucking phone right now. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like without, without daddy Kev, there are definitely, you know, a lot of your, uh, brain feeder artists that, that are, um, that are in your ear holes right now, like you might not have, you might not have found them as easy. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I, I was, I've always been curious about how he stays so motivated to manage so many different things with the nightclub, with the, with the studio, with the, uh, with the label, because it's very inspiring. 
it's inspiring. That's what it is. So that's why Daddy Kev is our 100th episode because uh, he kind of ties together all the plot holes with, uh, you know, we've been trying to like get to the bottom of the low end theory uh, origin story ever since I started doing podcasts. And so, you know, we it's all kind of come together. If you go listen to the, the episodes that we've done with all the residents and this is maybe the final piece of that puzzle. So without further ado, after a hundred long rambling intros, this is another long rambling intro. Here is our 100th episode with the guy who helps bring it to you, Daddy Kev. Yesterday is your first Grammys Awards that you went to? That is correct. Yes, sir. Well, how was the experience? You know, it was it was uh, it was interesting. You know, being a, nom- a nominee was very cool. Yeah, uh, the treatment is a little little different, but yeah, it was, it was cool. I got to see a lot of friends and uh, just see the process a bit. What'd you wear on the red carpet? Uh, I was wearing a tuxedo. Oh shit! Oh yeah, I was all decked out, suited and booted. Oh yeah, hell yeah, man. Um, First time since prom. Uh, Is it really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you built a lifestyle where you get to wear jeans and T-shirts pretty much every day, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. How was that feeling when you found out that you ha- you're a Grammy nominee? It was surreal. I yeah. mean... Because um, how, approximately how many years have you been working in what you would call the music industry? Uh, since, <clears throat> since 92. So that's like, what, 34 years? 20, no, 24 20, years. 24 Sorry, years. I'm horrible at math. <laughs> 24 years in the game, yeah. Shout out to Common Core. I need, I need help with that. Uh, 24 years in the game, that's fantastic. And do you feel like it's one of your... Is it one of your proudest moments? Is it up there? For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I... Part of it, though, I mean, I don't, I don't make music for accolades. Right. You know, I do pretty underground, you know, stuff. So it, yeah. something like the Grammys is, is not on the the docket right, usually right so that was kind of to me the cool thing is just you know doing music that i love and then and that being what breaks through right and even even with that being said not making music for the accolades like i would say overall you're like a behind the scenes dude you're you're the dude that's behind the guys making shit happen you know what i mean and i feel like you're not somebody who really you don't care about the credit you get you care about getting shit done right? yeah i mean it's it's Definitely. I mean, I, my artist career ended many years ago, right. you know, the idea of pursuing an artist career. That was something I was trying to do in the nineties yeah. and really is, is not part of my, uh, you know, what I'm pursuing at this point. Right. What are you pursuing at this point? What would you say? Does it ever get easier to define what the life goal is? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel my role is that of a facilitator. Yeah. So that involves, you know, putting other people's, you know, careers and artistry ahead of mine. That's goes from, you know, being a label owner, uh, being an engineer, being a club promoter an event promoter, you know, it's about propelling other people's careers first. Right. You're from California. You're from Los Angeles. Yeah. Born and raised. Yes. Born and raised. Yes. What part of town are you born in? Harbor city. Where's that? That is South LA off the 110 freeway. Okay. So kind of be- between, you know, it's right near Carson. Like Carson. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, uh, what kind of family are you born into? You know, my family has been in Los Angeles for a long time. My grandfather went to manual arts in the twenties. Wow. 
so you know I've, I've been here i mean my family's been here for a long time yeah and uh my dad is was from china uh-huh. and met my mom in inglewood they met and married in inglewood how and, did they meet in inglewood um you know was, they were living in the same apartment building oh okay and uh convenient yep and my dad how'd your dad end up over here from china it was the revolution oh okay and so they they fled uh they lived in uh what was then canton yeah. and uh went to hong kong and then he went to san francisco when they arrived and then uh eventually made his way down here wow that's crazy uh, did he tell a lot of stories about that time of his life or like the the struggles kind of of getting from from over there to over here a bit i mean it was pretty dramatic uh during the when he when they fled he had three older brothers who didn't make it oh wow you know yeah from you know from the war and the japanese occupation so you know there was a lot of that that you know he didn't really feel comfortable talking about because of how you know uh traumatic you know that is and yeah. you know, coming from you know dealing with full-blown war you know scenario right so uh and he didn't he always just wanted you know i have one brother an older brother he just wanted us to you know live the american dream basically right right and then so your mom's side is the generational angelinos yes how, and so they've been here for what like four or five generations something or yeah i mean at least four now yeah, yeah. and yeah. are they latino or are they white what white. Are, yeah. yeah white mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. what was your grandfather's racket in los angeles back then you said he was in the arts no, I mean he went to manual arts. Okay. High school. Oh, high school. Okay. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is like one of the ones right right near USC, South Central. Okay, okay. They used to live off fiftieth street. Uh-huh. They were into a, a bunch of different things. My yeah. grandmother, she was an artist. Oh wow. And uh they just did that yeah. you know, for a long time. Yeah. And uh yeah, and then my mom, you know, they met, met my dad in the sixties and then uh my dad was you know the main breadwinner. Were they was your mom artistic? You know, she was always a really good writer. Yeah. But my grandmother was a really great visual artist. Okay. And then they had, you know, my brother and I involved in music stuff really early. Yeah, I was going to say, like, in hindsight, where do you think the early love of music came from? I mean, they loved listening to music. Yeah. And... What was floating through the airwaves in your household? My dad was a big jazz guy. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, so like, you know, Coltrane, Miles Davis. uh, My mom was a huge Beatles uh, person. Okay. So that was my main regimen from them growing up. And then then I took piano lessons from age six. I did that for a few years. And then when I got to elementary school, I did trumpet for six years. Okay. Yeah, nice. Uh, And so you're growing up in like what? late 70s early 80s in los angeles a turbulent time around here yeah yeah i mean that was the beginning of the crack epidemic or what yeah i mean i grew up you know for the most part in the in the 80s i graduated from high school in 92 yeah uh i went to narbonne i went lausd you know k through 12 yeah so yeah i mean i was you know ground zero for for a lot of that right you know i had like three friends get killed when i was in high school oh shit um you know so i was i was in the middle of it yeah like south la is pretty it it was a violent area at the time yeah especially harbor area yeah yeah they're doing the most down there arguably what kind of like what kind of was it gang culture yeah what kind of gangs were was it like bloods and crips or was there also yeah i mean it was one of those two yeah a lot of um you know i grew up with a lot of samoans i was yeah i thought so yeah yeah yeah. you know uh frank from low end right right uh we were you know we grew up together Uh from the sandbox and 
uh, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, it was hard to escape it if you went to public school. Yeah. At the time, in context, did you feel that? Like, was it scary to be out in your neighborhood or was it just kind of like, oh, this is just what life is? Do you know what I mean? Like, what, was there was there a sense of anxiety in the air or did you just feel as though you were having a normal childhood? I mean, at the time, you feel like you're having a normal childhood. I yeah. mean, I grew, I grew up two doors down from a crack house, you know? So, oh, wow. I mean... And right on a corner that was pretty busy, uh, Sepulveda in Vermont. So, mm-hmm. you know, there'd be, you know, I don't know, robberies at least once a month you oh, know, wow. going on at one of those, you know, either, either the Kmart or the Zodis. And, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty active yeah. in, that, in that way. Yeah. Know? When you went to school, I bet you have stories of like people that you went to school with that people would be surprised to hear. Los Angeles people always have stories about like, oh, I went to elementary school with so-and-so that went on to do this. For the most part, I mean, when I was in high school, yeah. uh, I went to high school with Imani from Farside. Oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that area, there's not there's not too many success stories. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, probably one of the biggest ones that went to my high school would have been Quentin Tarantino. Oh, no, sure. Who dropped out from Narbonne. Uh I think Bo Derek went there, okay. uh, you know, um, but you know, there's not, I mean, since then it's become a big football high school. So there's but all these NFL not, guys, but you know, that's not where you started making like your main musical connections or no, no, not at all. I mean, I, not at all. My main musical connections started when I was in high school. It was yeah. the birth of the rave scene in LA. Okay. And I got an internship at herb magazine. Oh, so that was my entry. When did herb start? 91. Okay. And so you got an internship, like what, your junior, senior year in high school? My senior year. Senior year. Mm -hmm. And what were you doing for them? Uh, Mainly design. Yeah. Back then. Right. I'd been involved with my school newspaper, uh, high school newspaper and junior high, and, you know, uh, was really into graphic design. And, uh, you know, then I started writing for the magazine a little Uh bit after that. But that was my my entry. And then I started doing clubs, you know, events that, that summer. Oh, already as yeah, like 92. an eighteen-year-old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Oh, so they were they sending you to events at first, or like, how, what was your intro into the rave scene in LA? Like, how'd you find out about it? You know, there was this um, article in Details Magazine. Yeah. Uh, about uh, this club that, or this party that used to happen called Double Hit Mickey. Uh-huh. And after I read that, I just wanted to learn more about it. And where did that, where did, where was that part? Yeah. In LA or New York? Or that was in LA. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that yeah. was just, you know, wherever they could do locations that was thrown by Gary Richards who went on to do hard. Oh, okay, and okay. I became like one of his main flyer guys, you know? Right. So in addition to doing my own parties, you know, I was uh, a flyer kid for double hit Mickey. So how did you break into that? Like, I've, I, you know, when I get emails and stuff, one of the main questions people send me that either follow the show or follow the music, they go, how can I get involved in the scene? And it's like a lot of kids aren't willing to, like, just go break down the door and take that step. So, like, how did you go from a high school kid that had an internship into, like, I'm going to go to my, this party that I like and I'm going to fucking work for the dude? I mean, he just gave me a shot. Yeah. You know? um, I was you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed. Yeah. You know, Were you just showing up to all the parties? I was going to all the parties. And, and that summer, I mean, I was going out to, you know, when, when it was usually on the weekends when these clubs would crack, mm-hmm. I would go to two or three or four parties a night. Wow. You know, promoting. Yeah. So he knew I was really effective Yeah, and, uh, really dedicated and a cool kid. You know, I wasn't all drugged out. So I was, I was, uh, I was, 
I really wanted to be involved. Where were the parties at back then? Was it like the modern scene where they're just in warehouses downtown and shit? I mean, it was all over LA. They yeah. would do warehouses. I mean, downtown was, was definitely a part of it. You know, I remember one party I helped promote was at the Morongo you know, oh, Indian yeah, Reservation, yeah, 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 yeah. National Indoor Swap Meet in Compton. The cool thing about Double Hit Mickey, they would do sometimes these really weird locations. So they did like Wild Rivers and Irvine, like okay. water park, yeah. rave, rave stuff before, wow. you know, these people knew what a rave was or even knew what we were up to. You know? Right. And so how they would just give the, the water park to like stay open late or something? All or? night. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's tight. Yeah, man. That's yeah. super tight. Um, and so that was like a scene that was getting inspired from European raves or what? Do they start, do they start in London or England or something? I mean, the music did. Yeah. I mean, the acid house stuff and then DJs from there, like Michael Cook, uh-huh. uh, came here and then at that point it became at least musically it was you know an emulation and then new york had a cool thing going on they had a bunch of great artists like you know frankie bones who was doing you know who also took what was happening in europe started doing it in new york and then you know a lot of i remember the acts that we'd bring out like the big headliners would usually be from new york or the uk okay and then at that point there was an la scene that was bubbling you know so we had our own dj heroes like dj dan or ron decor and, uh, you know, Steve Loria, you know, R.A.W., uh-huh. you know, Six Block, he's from that era. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and, that, and it was uh, it was really exciting back then, you know. What was the name of the first show that you threw? Do you remember? I mean, technically, it would have been some of the parties I was promoting, you know, insofar as, you know, yeah. literally not promoting from a, an event organization point yeah. of view, but, like, getting the word out would have been Double Hit Mickey. Um, and then... You know, back then I had another pseudonym. I used to go by the Boy Wonder, uh-huh. and um, there was this guy I knew um, from South Central, Mister Neat, that we would do these parties. You know, yeah. And, um, I forget. Like I, I think the first one I ever did was it was you know back then it was a lot of the themes were based on cartoons. Uh-huh. Uh, we Ren and Stimpy oh, was yeah. like this you know favorite of ours, so we did this one called Happy Happy Joy Joy. Oh right. I think that was my first legit solo party maybe yeah how, how many people do you think showed up uh, i don't know 80 how, how did that feel great yeah. i mean we pulled it off we had a map point my brother worked the map point um when you say map point what do you mean like okay oh, this is like pre-internet pretty much like nobody's on like twitter talking about here rsvp to the address well, so well, it's back like, then it was all like voicemails you know so you would have a phone number yeah that would be on your flyer how would people oh on the flyer so people uh-huh. would call the voicemail and the voicemail would say oh meet here go to this area yeah and then you'd have guys there with the map wow they'd hand out the map yeah the map takes you to the party <laughs> that's crazy i mean sometimes you'd have multiple map locations depending how you know uh depending how you know, uh, illegal, the party was right. Were parties getting burnt pretty often or no? Or like, cause that, the whole point of hiding the party is so the cops don't show up. So how often would the cops show up? You know, off t- too often. I mean, but yeah. you know, not one of my big parties that this one party called the gift, uh-huh. uh, that, that we got, yeah, we got majorly popped on, but yeah. that was a big warehouse that we found, um, off of, I want to say it was, it was technically it was like right where the 105 and the 110 meet okay yeah now yeah and uh we had a lot of people it was at least 500 people at this party oh wow and, and when you say majorly popped like i feel like nowadays cops might give a ticket if you're throwing a party like what what was it then did you guys get cuffed up and go to jail or what no we ran i mean oh. yeah we bailed yeah you know as soon as you know uh we kind of lost control of the party basically yeah. so uh 
yeah, we just got the sound system and got out of there. Oh shit. Yeah. When does the shift come from, from throwing the parties into like making, like being involved in making the music or was it always kind of t- well, tied mean, hand in hand? Well, I was doing a lot of that in the beginning more. I mean, I was DJing back then too. You okay. Know? So I was DJing from junior high. So after I, you know, it was me when I was playing trumpet and stuff, what, led me to stop that was getting into DJing. So you, you got some turntables? Like did you have my your neighbor, own setup? My neighbor had a set. Yeah. And um and then we you know, I, I kind of fell in love with it back then. And then when I graduated high school and went to college, my brother and I threw down together for a pair of twelve hundreds. What kind of stuff are you spinning in junior high? Is it like freestyle stuff yeah. or freestyle, yeah. you know, Trainer, yeah. you know, Stevie B. Yeah. Uh, and then and then early la rap stuff there was this record store um in carson uh near scottsdale that they had all the early nwa stuff and you know we were buying all the ruthless record stuff right you know early, right. early on yeah okay um so you're already djing so so were you would you throw the parties in order to also dj at the parties so my neighbor ron he was the dude who would who had the 1200 or who had the turntables his dad bought for him right and then there was this other dude from our neighborhood, Rodney, Rodney Martin, who uh, was a mobile DJ. And he had all these contracts with the LAUSD. So this dude was doing gigs every weekend, yeah, like high school and junior high school dances. So we became his roadies, basically. And he, you know, he was getting paid pretty well, at least by my standards at that point, you know, four to five hundred bucks to do these high school dances. Because yeah, side note, LAUSD, that's the school district out here for, for the regional. But yeah, go ahead. And yeah. then he would pay us 20 bucks each. Yeah. You know, we'd show up after, you know, Friday night, six o'clock, we'd load up his van We'd and we'd go to his house, load up his van with all the equipment, do all the work. We'd drive to the venue. We'd unload it all, set it all up. Yeah. And then uh, he'd let us DJ so that was you guys were record carriers, and that, at that time, that was the route into getting to DJ. It was like, yo, you do the work, and then you'll get some of the spoils. And you can open up, you know. So he let us DJ for like the first hour, yeah. And then he would DJ, you know, yeah. prime time. And then uh, gig would end. He'd go get, you know, yeah. settle. And we, you guys we, would pack we'd up. pack it all up. Yeah. And uh, it was the best job in the world. And so what you were like sixteen, seventeen, doing that? Yeah, that's yeah, 15, tight. 16, 17. And you know, it was cool. I got to go all city. I got to. DJ at all these dances in all right. over LA you know? as Wonder Boy. No, I, at oh. that point I didn't even have a name. I just, I, I just Boy Wonder was or Boy was, Wonder sorry. was my you know promoter, promoter name. name. But yeah, it was just you know um, you know it, I just yeah I didn't even it wasn't even like that. We weren't billed. You know? Right, right, right. Just Kev. You know? Yeah. And, uh, at that time, would you like would you be DJing but also get on the mic and say something like or, or was no. it just like spin records? We would just spin records. Yeah. yeah. And we had a DJ crew back then. It was called Finesse Productions. That yeah. was like my DJ crew. Right. Know? Back then, w- were people getting into turntablism a little bit? Like you had a mixer and everything. Are you trying to are you juggling at all and stuff like that? We're trying. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, at that point, the mixers weren't built for it as much. But I mean, we were heavily inspired by like the dmc videos and all the battle stuff yeah some of our local heroes were like you know uh joe cooley and you know um of course r.i.w who used to go by dj one-on-one in carson there was a venue called samarica hall where a lot of these you know battles would take place back in the day and you know it was a huge you know huge thing for us when I think of like Daddy Kev as an artist, like I learned about the show promotion stuff later from you. The way that my head instantly linked to you was like as a record producer. And so 
um, when did you start meeting the dudes f- that that would go on to become like uh, Project Blodians that you worked with? Like, were you going to the Good Life and stuff like that? No, I had moved back from college. I went to college at UCSD, and I kept doing shows down there, and um, moved back to LA, uh-huh. and then I got a job uh, in the record business, uh, working at Sire Records. What was Sire Records about? It was just a uh, you know, an old, I mean, it's, it was like a Warner subsidiary okay. uh, founded by Seymour Stein, the guy who like found Madonna and uh-huh. all that. Uh-huh. And, uh, I was living, when I moved back, I, I was living in Wilmington cause I had an old friend from high school that had a room open uh-huh. and then his, he was a rapper, uh-huh. underground dude. And he was, um, he knew LAJ from the shapeshifters. Oh, okay. Okay. So. I started hanging out with, you know, Jay's house, just, you know, he had an NPC. And at that point he was like one of the most, he was the most famous producer I knew. Okay. Uh, he had done like production for Tony, Tony, Tony and Vanessa Williams had like multiple, you know, gold and platinum records on his wall. Oh, no shit. And so I was watching him. And then when I was working at Sire, they were trying to sign this new artist named Hive. And... It was funny. They, you know, they, they tried to, you know, they knew I was one of the only dudes working there who smoked weed. So one day they were like, the A&R was like, yeah, man, take him downstairs and, you know, smoke some weed with them yeah. to the parking lot. I was like, okay. And I had, uh, this, uh, DJ premier Crooklyn cuts mixtape. We listened to it and we just made a connection. You know, he was living in San Pedro at the time. Uh-huh. So, and then I think he was, if I remember correctly, also selling weed at the time, terrible weed. So I got his number. I was like, yeah, man, I'll hit you up, you know, to get some weed from you. Right. And we ended up clicking, you know, Hive had a studio. He was a dude who recorded beneath the surface. Okay. So I went over there for one of those sessions just to hang out. Uh And then he needed to move. I wanted to move out of Wilmington. So we moved in together in, I want to say it was 1997. Well, I have two questions that popped yeah, sure. up. You went to USD, you said? UC San Diego. UC San Diego. And so what did you study in college? Philosophy. Philosophy? Yeah. No shit. You were like, I'm really going to be in the music industry. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I looked at the course catalog and I was like, all right, which has the smallest amount of requirements? There you go. And okay. And so was, then Beneath the Surface, that was like a radio show? No, that was, was that? a compilation, like a Project Blow 2 type compilation that was produced by Omid. Okay. They had fellowship on there and had all the, you know, LA cool and all a bunch of good lifers and okay. Blodians were on there. And then what kind of rapper was Hive? Like, I wasn't a rapper. He was a producer. Oh, he was a producer Drum, and turned into a German bass guy. Okay. Okay. So, uh, then, okay. Back to your story. You move, you move in in Wilmington or you move out of Wilmington. What did you say? We move out of, I move out of Wilmington. Yeah. He moves out of San Pedro and he had a stu- a dope studio. I mean, yeah. he had, you know, back then, this is before computers, so he had like multiple ADATs, 24-channel Mackie board, a bunch of effects. Um, and we moved to Mount Washington yeah. into a house that became, we called it the Auditorium, where we launched Celestial Recordings out of and uh, recorded a bunch of you know great records down there. I think maybe a lot of people don't know this about you that just know the name Daddy Kev, but you're like a world-class engineer and also just like a gearhead because people might know only know your business acumen or might only know your production credits, but they don't realize that you're also like a sonic wizard. So at that time when you're seeing these studios like Hive Studio and you see the ADATs and stuff, were you already really intrigued with gear? Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew what that stuff was. I mean, I, I recognized, you know, um, the quality that you could get from that gear. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, and then we 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 then he had a friend, this dude Phoenix Orion. Oh yeah, I know who Phoenix Orion is. Who then, you know, he was always hanging out at the house. And uh, yeah, and then my first record that I did significant production on would have been Phoenix Orion's first album. When was this? Like around ninety six, ninety seven. This is we recorded it in ninety seven, and it came out summer of ninety eight. Summer of 98, yeah. Okay. I, I have a funny Phoenix Orion story. I'm sure you do. Does everybody? <laughs> I think I, so. I was at a show, and I think it's maybe an infamous show, where, like, uh, I think maybe he was opening for Cool Keith in Pomona or something, and he came out in, like, a full-on leather um, bike outfit, biker outfit, but had it kind of, like, decked out with extra alien stuff on it and maybe, like, a hand over, like, a mannequin hand over his crotch, and, like, the crowd started getting a little restless, and he, like, he was like, I'll come out in the crowd and fight you guys. And lo and behold, he jumped into the crowd and socked somebody. And that was, like, legendary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was – those were wild times. Yeah. Back yeah. Then. Yeah. Um, so you produced the whole record for him? I did about half of it. Yep. About, yeah. And what was your technique? Like, did you have your own MPC at this time? I did. And so what kind of stuff were you sampling? Like, what was talking to you at the time? I mean, you know, I was a crate digger. So it was, you know, obscure jazz stuff. Yeah. Uh, breaks. And, uh yeah, I mean, we had great chemistry. That was some, uh, you know, that was my, uh, I learned a lot from those those days. It seems like all, music, you know? in the West Coast underground, like on the East Coast underground, it seemed like uh, people did a lot of digging into soul samples. And on the West Coast underground, it seemed like jazz was really talking to you guys more out here. Like, why do you think that was? Uh, I mean, I think it was just contagious, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was also, you know, based upon our template record, was you know fellowships first album yeah so that was if there was any one we were trying to sound like it was you know like jmd and you know what they did on inner city grios you know yeah right and when you're working with um phoenix at that point had you met the fellowship dudes yet no so phoenix's cousin from new york was supernatural oh yeah so because of the success of his first album he was like all right my cousin's gonna fly out here and we clicked immediately so we started working with Super Nat. I produced the B-side of one of his first 12 inches of that era. This, yeah. Uh, this thing that came out in 99. And then it was after that, then Super Nat started working with Peace on a project. Mm. And then started bringing Peace around. Mm. Oh, so Peace was your entryway into the, yes. into the fellowship? Yes. Okay. So then, and then we became really good friends. And then I was producing Peace material. Were those guys just already LA legends at that point? Oh, like yeah. I mean, they, those, they were like mythological was, characters. That was yeah, that was the highest level. Yeah. You know? And so then yeah, we we uh clicked immediately and then Concrete Jungle, my first weekly club, yeah, started in ninety nine. And that became then the you know, the the focal point mm -hmm. for where we would all hang out and, you know, uh, kinda like a an early low end theory. Yeah. So tell me about the conception of Concrete Jungle, because I think like at this point that's something that maybe a lot of younger cats don't even know about. I mean, it was um, at the time, you know, it was it was an extension of a New York club. Again, Phoenix knew the dude who started the original Concrete Jungle. Oh, okay. We started the L.A. version of it that had two rooms. We did it at Spaceland, which is now the satellite. Yeah. So we had drum and bass in the big room, and then hip hop in the back room, and then the residents were myself. DJ Hive, you know, who was doing the drum bass stuff. And, yeah. then, and then Edit from Glitch Mob. Oh, yeah. Who went, you know, who back then was called Con Artist. And then another dude. Um, he must have been young at that point. Very huh? young. He was a col in college at USC. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, and then we we did that for a little over two years. Would every you Wednesday. would you mainly be in the uh, would you mainly be in the drum and race bass room DJing or in the hip hop room or both? I started mainly in the drum bass room, and towards the end, I was just doing the back room. Okay, yeah. What kind of stuff were you spinning at that time? Uh, you know, I mean, the drum and bass, it was whatever the hot thing coming out of the UK was, but... Well, like hip-hop wise, because I feel like you're was, you're an anti-establishment hip-hop dude, kind of. Well, back then, yeah, it was, you know... So I'm, I'm I mean, sure was, it wasn't Nelly. I mean, I was I was playing beats, you know, I was playing, yeah. you know, Moax stuff, DJ Shadow, uh, you know, I was playing, you know, Company Flow. Oh, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we had these ciphers that would go down back there all the time. So Who, who'd be in them? I mean, my, we made Peace, one of the early residents, and then Micah Knight. Oh, okay. So it was Peace and Micah. With, well, since we had those two, you know, you'd have a lot of guys showing up. Uh-huh. So Bus Driver was another one of the people who was there all the time. And he was a young gun back then. Yeah, very young. Uh, Woes, another dude who was there all the time. Uh, and we had, like, you know, De La Soul come through there. Oh, and no Most Def come through. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a spot. It was the spot for that kind of, you know underground uh weekly type of you know experience what day did you throw that that was on wednesdays that was also on wednesdays why did you choose wednesdays you know it just seemed like an open night because now wednesdays are still legendary in your world very i mean it's back then it just seemed like a night that you weren't going to compete as hard right you know um the, doing events in LA on the weekends, it, it can be very, very competitive. Extremely. I yeah. mean, this is one of the most competitive markets in the world for nightlife. Oh, yeah. I mean, last weekend, there was probably six parties that I wanted to go to, I think. I mean, Doc, there's probably a hundred events happening on any Friday or Saturday night out here. So, right, I right. mean, you're up against family events, you're up against big concerts. I mean, totally. You know, it's. it's 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 you kind of when you're operating Wednesday, I feel like it's kind of a safe place. Yeah, Wednesday you get to be the big fish in a small pond, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's okay. So that's very logical, and you already were thinking of that back then. And so, um, did well. So like low end theory, obviously, in in the time it's been running, has caught on with a multitude of of celebrity musicians or just celebrities in general. Like you end up with people that, that perhaps, you know, you're surprised to find out that you've been influencing them or whatever. So at the time with concrete jungle, did it catch on like that? Were like celebs starting to kind of get in on the action a little bit, not, not quite what, you know, low in theory became, Yeah, but you know, we had our, our people that were, that were heads. Yeah. You know, probably our most, you know, famous person would come regularly was probably, um, John Frusciante. Oh, yeah. Because he was there, like, every week. Really? Um, was he in uh, Chili Peppers at the time? Yes. Oh, okay. And then Chad Muska. Oh, yeah. You know, Skater. He was one of our heads. Right, uh, right. He used uh, to be a big style icon to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise would pop in. No shit. Uh-huh. That's crazy. Tom Cruise. Um, he used to love Mirror, Mirror One because Mirror One would paint. Oh, live and, painting. Yeah, and he would just post up. Yeah, watch, yeah. Watch a mirror, you know. What was the demise of Concrete Jungle? Why'd you guys end it? We kind of just had a falling out with the venue. Okay. We just, you know, we we were a lot to handle. Yeah. Uh, there was fights, the noise, us constantly battling with them to make it louder, and it wasn't loud enough. And then one night, the owner, we had a sound guy who would bring in sound, and then the owner was like, you can't have sound in here anymore like that. And we just bailed. Mm. That was it. It was in Ho- it's, the Space Nights in Hollywood, yeah? 
Silver Lake. Silver Lake. Okay. Did you feel like Concrete Jungle was like kind of a graduation from where you're throwing parties at warehouses and having to make give people maps and everything? Did it feel like just a little more official to do it in a venue, or like why did you choose to go in a venue rather than uh, just stay into the warehouse scene? Well, I mean, well, the segue to that would would have been when I was in college Uh and I ran for this office where I was the director of entertainment at UCSD for a year. Oh, so you're like booking the shows and stuff. Yeah. So I was booking all the shows and I did this big, there's this thing down there called the sun God festival. And I did that. That still goes on, doesn't it? It uh, sure does. It's a multi-thousand person thing. Right. And that was really my graduation into doing more legit shows. Dealing with agents and stuff like that. Yep. Yep. And then that through that, I kind of learned how to, you know, how to negotiate that and then doing concrete a weekly is a whole nother, you know, ball of wax. Right. It's a lot more intensive. Um, cause you, cause a lot about, you know, what we, what will spell your success as a weekly is going to be your momentum and consistency, consistency, and, yeah. promotions, booking. Right. You know, I mean, and doing it in advance, yeah. you really got to be on top of it. So that, but all of that, and we made plenty of, I mean, I learned a lot from that situation of the rise of it, to the demise of it, um, the, the role that residents play yeah. in a weekly club, and tried to parlay all of that into low in theory. Yeah. And so, what, like, what, you're mid to late 20s at that time doing that? Late 20s, yeah. Is it just kind of like the final fallout, just kind of young man hot-headedness type of shit? Yeah. Yeah. We just weren't thinking that we weren't thinking in the future. Right. We're just like, you know. And at that point, I mean, we'd had some bad things happen down there. Yeah. You know, so it was like, you know, we had uh, my my friend Miley who died, you know, um, driving home from there. And and, uh, as part of, you know, when Peace got in the accident. And, you know, that's... That's, uh, you know, at that point, I was kind of ready for a break. That's, just, that's like a drunk driving thing? Or uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you, were you involved in music production the whole time that you were doing that, too? Yes. yes. That's when I was full board, you know, pr- producing and then also running Celestial. Yeah. And then... Talk about Celestial a little bit for people that don't know. That was kind of all born out of the same thing. When we started with the Phoenix Orion record, when uh-huh. we started Celestial, it was just a one-off. We just needed a name to put on the, the jacket. The right. And then we did the Super Nat thing, and then we got a deal. You know, we got a, a distribution deal from Caroline. And oh, yeah. they broke us off. I mean, you know, I think we got $25,000, you know, nice. off, off the top. And that was, for us, that was the most money... I'd ever seen right. at one time. And, and that's like an advance? Did you have to pay it back or what? Yeah, it was an advance. Yeah. It was, and of course, you know, we spent it like it was not an advance. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I want to say the first day, you know, we, me and Hive went to Guitar Center and dropped like 10 grand. You oh, know? shit. Yeah, man. I mean, and then... I didn't know that uh, Guitar Center sells cocaine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, we just bought like microphones yeah, and extra right, Pro right. Tools card. And then, yeah. And then we lived off it. You know, we, we paid rent yeah. with this, with, for our studio slash house. It seems like a ton of money, but I'm sure it goes fast. <laughs> it went in like eight months. Yeah. You know, and then because we were buying, you know, kegs of beer and weed and right, pizza. Right. And then we ran out of money. Uh-huh. So we asked them for another advance, which they gave to us. They gave us like 50 grand. Wow. How many records had you guys put out? At that point, maybe just a handful. But the Phoenix one did really well. It sold like 10,000 units. Oh, know? wow. So it was at that point that but we never put out another record that did numbers like that right so at the beginning they're like oh okay these dudes are actually doing some 
solid units, but we we never followed it up. And was uh, this your first experience um, taking something from like an idea into a, an official business? Like, did you guys do the whole like fake business name and and yeah, official I mean, we, papers with lawyers L- and all LLC, that shit? Yeah, LLC, yeah. the whole nine. Yeah, yeah, that was my first. And that was your learning experience with that. Yes, and yeah. s- and so that's probably gone on to like. Uh, help you in so many ways in the long run was that experience sure. yeah. yeah I mean you know and then we had a big breakup you know we we got into a beef with Phoenix because at the time it was a four person partnership in the label me Hive Phoenix and then Hive's manager Hive and his manager broke up broke up and then everyone took sides. Yeah. And then we it was like a divorce. Right. So then that's when we had to ask for the more money because we had already run through a bunch of it. But then we had to pay those dudes out and we had nothing left. Yeah. And we had to pay royalties, you know, because at that point, you know, we, we re-released Beneath the Surface and we needed to, like, pay the artists that we were releasing music on. So we we're like, hey, we, we need more money, you know. Yeah. And we got another 50 grand. That lasted us another two years. Yeah. And then we just ran through it and then just ran itself into the ground, you know? Yeah. And what, what's that feeling like with the breakup? Did you feel like, oh, shit, what now? Like, did it make your future seem bright or did it make your future seem like, oh, I'm fucked? I mean, at that point, it's pretty dramatic. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that was like my dream to, right. to launch a label and to, you know, have it teetering, uh, you know, with your friends. Right. Who you start it when you know, when you start a label with friends. Uh, you know, you're not thinking about splitting up Ugh. all this money, you know? So Man, how, how about it? I, I feel like one, I feel like the biggest business mistake is going into business with friends. It can be. <laughs> I mean, it's, it just ruins friendships. I mean, well, you want to be going into business with people who know how to do business. Yeah, totally. I mean, and when you're young, you, no one knows how to do business yet. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you get all these MBAs coming into the music business. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, most of this is like you learn it through other things and you're improvising and that, uh, that's a tough place to be, you know, but at the same time, like to, to see the positive aspect, a lot of learning comes through failure for sure. Right. So that had to be a great learning experience in the failure. Cause you kind of like try to learn what not to do in the future. I mean, arguably, that's what Concrete Jungle was for me. That's what Celestial Recordings was for me. Right. I had to, like, fall flat on my face on multiple levels to then, you know, get up again. Yeah. Do Alpha Pup and do Low In Theory. Yeah. So from, like, a real human aspect, I feel like sometimes, like, I've been through those failures, you know what I mean, where I'm like, oh, so heartbroken and I feel like my world is crumbling because this thing that I love just fell apart in front of me. And it it takes me a while to reset and go like, oh, wait, I'm, like, re-inspired and now I want to fucking start a new venture that that hopefully I won't fail in. How how long did it take you uh, after Celestial to kind of be like, I have big ideas again? After Celestial, I went to work for Sony for two years. What were you doing there? I was a label manager at Sony Corp America. And was that, uh, at the time, did it feel like uh, I just need something in the meantime? Or did it feel like I'm settling for this? Or, or was it like, this is the biggest opportunity ever? It was an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was a great salary. Yeah. And uh, it was something that I, I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was producing less. I was still doing some stuff. But, you know, I kind of went in on that for for a, a while just to taste it and see what it was all about. But it was there that the idea for Alpha Pup was born. What were your responsibilities there? Uh, you know, I was a label liaison. So I would deal with um, 
you know, just concerns. I mean, I would deal quite a bit with one of my main accounts was the, you know, Sony BMG music groups. Yeah. So just taking their desires and, you know, what they wanted to do with Sony Corp. And we had this thing running called Sony Connect at the time. It was kind of like a download store Mm -hmm. Um, and working with them. And 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 that's when I realized that there was a huge, that that there was room, there was a void for doing a more boutique digital distribution type operation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I started Alpha Pup when I was still on Sony salary. So this is what the early aughts or like the, like, Mid-aughts, 2003, 2003, 2004. Okay. We started um, Alpha Pup February 2004. And so iTunes is like brand new at that point, brand right? Brand new. Like, yeah, less than a year old. Because I, I put out a record in 07 and I remember it being like, should we put it on iTunes or not type of thing. Like it was still very optional. And now it's like, you got to have it on iTunes, obviously. Like that's the that's the route to getting it everywhere else almost. like Yeah. And what was great was that. My main contact at BMG yeah. was this dude, Kirk Bonin, who, when he was leaving, uh-huh. he went to Apple. Oh. So that was my hookup. That's the plug. Yeah, for getting the direct deal and and in the future, doing all the promotions and introducing me to the staff. Right. So what was the... I don't know that there's ever a huge moment for an idea, but like, what was the initial inspiration for Alpha Pup in that, like, um, if you had an elevator pitch for it, what, what was your description of what you were trying to do? Uh, you know, uh, just a more streamlined operation, smaller op, yeah. uh, that it was about uh, quality music versus quantity, because back then it was all about volume. Right. You know, how many titles do you have versus how few titles do you have that are actually going to sell? Right. So, and then back then, I was when I met Armin Baladian, who owns Westbound, which is like the Funkadelic, old Funkadelic catalog and Ohio Players stuff. And then they became one of our first big clients. Right. How did you meet him? Through at working at Sony. Okay. Yeah. And so they were just looking for digital distribution, and you're like, no, they didn't even they, they don't know even what it thinking was. about it. Yeah. Right. But you know, um, I cold called them to try to get them down with what Sony was doing. Uh huh. And just formed a relationship after calling them over and over and over again. And, right. And then we just, uh, when Alpha Pup launched, I was like, hey, this is what I'm doing. How do you feel about us introducing Funkadelic to iTunes? Yeah. And so that's what we did. And they were open to it. Totally. The Sony Connect thing, how long did that last? You know, a few years, maybe three or four years. I mean, I left you know, when Alpha Pup started really going, you left before that. Yeah, yeah, before that ended. Yeah, because I mean, that must have been one of those things. Like when iTunes takes over, like everybody else just kind of bowed out. I mean, there's still people playing it, but yeah, I mean, they th- that ended. Oh, I'm not sure when it did. Yeah, it kind it got folded into PlayStation Network. At what point did you end up recording? Um, maybe your most like recognizable beat with a wall rhythm and it do 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 right? Yeah. Okay. How, how, like, wh- where's uh? What year is that? Did you guys? That's 2000. Yeah. Um, you know, Celestial still going. Is that like during the Concrete Jungle time too? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. And. Well, when that happened, a- AWOL was kind of like next up at that point, right? Yeah, it felt like it. Yeah. I mean, we had put out a record for him, uh, the Speakerface record on Celestial. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you know, we, we formed a friendship, and then we had these sessions that went on every week uh-huh. for like a few months. We'd uh-huh. come over, I think it was on Tuesdays. And, we, you know, each session I'd have, we'd record the beats I'd given him the previous week. Yeah. And then I'd give him some new beats. 
And then uh, Rhythm was the last of those sessions. Oh, it was the last one. Yep. Did he just kind of like, w- w- did you know when you made that beat, like, oh, this is this is something? No. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, we the record was called Sold Out. Yeah. It came out and it blew up. I mean, that sold really well. I mean, for from personal context, that was right when I moved to California. It was in like 2000. And Shapeshifters and AWOL 1 were like, at, they were the, they were the um, main support, I would say, for like every show I was going to. They were going on right before the headliner at like almost every LA show. Yeah. Right? I mean, they were the buzz back then. I mean, it was... Yeah. It was almost like there was about to be a major breakthrough. Right. It felt like it. Right, right. And then we were getting courted by Epitaph. Oh, yeah. You know? Because um, they were signing, they were signing like rappers at that time. That was the gateway record. I mean, you know, Andy Calkin would tell you, yeah. Sold Out was the record that introduced him to underground rap. Ah. Uh. Because we were getting a bunch of press, you know, Spin, all these people were about it. Yeah. But then he found Atmosphere. Yeah. So that was a lot more That was very interesting. marketable. Right, very palatable. <laughs> and Sage, France, I took him to his first Sage Francis show. Yeah. Didn't Bus Driver put out a record on Epitaph too? He sure did. Yeah. 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 So, but then, you know, and at that point too, again, my, what I was doing, uh-huh. you know, me and AWOL made a few more. We made another two albums after that. I got caught up with Mush Records, which was a disaster. Huh. But they had money. Yeah. You know, so back then it was like, all right, you know, you got 10 grand to pony up yeah. for, to give an advance. You know, guess what? I'll, I'll be there. You know, it's funny to hear like, oh, Mush was a disaster because I, I look at like my the beginning of me starting to rap. I was like, ooh, I would love to be on Mush because they put on they put out ASAP Rock or uh, ASAP Rock. Rock yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I would look at their roster and be like, well, Mush is like really on, but I've heard nothing but horror stories oh, yeah. in the long run. You know, yeah. it is what it is. You yeah, know, for learn, sure. Learning blah, blah, blah. Yeah, learning experiences. So, um, yeah, how, how's that? How's that feeling of of the AWOL buzz taking off and like hearing your beats kind of everywhere? With I mean, we that? were on the radio. I mean, two thousand one. Yeah, we were on Power one hundred six. Wow, you know, yeah, um, it was. It you know it really. I mean, that was my biggest song. It still is. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I feel like you can still throw that on at certain parties and it'll fucking go off. You know. Okay, so you're at Sony. Start Alpha Pup. Who's your first signee at Alpha Pup? Paris X. Right. So who, who produced Imaginary Places, Bus Driver. Bus Driver, yeah. yeah. And so did you have him in mind when you're curation, when you're coming up with the idea in your head and you're like thinking about artists that you want to show to the world, is he the first one that pops up? Like this will be perfect? Yeah, because we were friends. He was working on a record, yeah. an instrumental record. Yeah. Um, that was 2005. We put that out. And, uh, you know, he was just right in front of me. Yeah. You know, so it was a logical decision. Yeah. Did you always have more of a of a hankering for like instrumental records over rap records? No, I mean the the most of my production has been for rappers. For rappers, but, but at the but same the, time, don't you get like rappers are pains in the ass to deal with? Like you got to get sick of them at a certain point. Yeah, can be. I yeah. mean, it depends who it is, but you know, at that point too, I think things were just changing. Yeah, you know, and and then a year later. Low in theory starts. Yeah. So tell me. Okay. So even before low in theory starts, I know that you already had to have seen this uh, shift in the momentum in Los Angeles, where um, there I, it seemed to me at the time living through it, like there was a whole collective of producers who were just kind of getting sick of of dealing with rappers, but they were also making beats that were probably better than a lot of the rappers that were al- around, I guess, in hindsight. So. Uh, what was your first kind of like glimpse into th- that bubbling scene or like the murmurs that you were hearing about it? Well, we did this 
Alpha Pup Party. Yeah. Um, you know, and then also an artist we had on the label was Edit from yeah, Glitch Mob and then right. a lot of the early Glitch Mob stuff. So um, basically, it was 2005, summer. We did an Alpha Pup free show at Echo. Uh-huh. I think, I think we had edit headlining uh-huh. and we had subtitle playing who we also had put a record out on and uh, blackbird who was produced by Paris Zacks. And then edit tells me about this dude. He, he knew, I think he'd met him through MySpace, named flying Lotus. Yo, flying Lotus, MySpace was cracking at the time, but this I- is even before it was like yeah. full tilt. This is 2005. You know, oh still no! But I, I was super aware era. back then, even because okay. I like uh, like I went. Okay, I've always thought in my head, and I fucked I fucked this uh, story up telling it before because I thought that show at the Echo was um, the first low end theory, but it was just a Alpha Pup party. It was an Alpha Pup party. But James was involved with that, right? He he hosted, or or either him or Tumex. Yeah, Tumex performed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so and that was the day I met Flylo. Really? Okay, so that was June 2005. I drove from Santa Barbara to go to that show. Nice. Yeah. yeah. yeah it was, was a free show. Remember, it was yeah, free. Yeah. So, and we had him open, you know, because no one knew who he was at yeah. that point. I mean, it wasn't his first show, but it had to have been one of the first. Right. And uh, I remember he showed up with this laptop that was like the size of a couch. You know, it was just this yeah. huge PC laptop on a tractor. Gaslamp Killer played that same show. Yeah. And that was kind of a precursor, you know, to what would happen then a year and change later. Yeah. And about almost a year later, I didn't really stay in touch with, with Flylo. I mean, we did on, online. Yeah. Then there was, did this- he already have like the cartoons on his MySpace? Cause that, that was the thing. Like th- there's some cartoon artist that was drawing like him and DBS. Yeah, yeah. That was by next year. That was okay. by 2006. So that, then, and then, yeah. So then basically we, um, it was another year later and there was this party uh, called Space Invaders that was happening in LA and SF. Uh-huh. This is the infamous van ride to San Francisco. You're right. I, at that point, too, I was speaking of bus driver, I was mixing the Roadkill Overcoat record mm-hmm. with DJ Nobody, mm-hmm. who produced two thirds of that record. That was me and Elvin reconnecting after many years of not hanging out. I had met him in the late 90s because he came through the auditorium mm-hmm. for his first record on Ubiquity, the Soulmates record. What's so, the auditorium? That was the Celestial Studio oh, okay. slash flop house that we had. Okay, okay. So then, um, and I remember I had a gig in SF. I didn't have a ride. I knew that Elvin, DJ Nobody, was going up there because he was going to there with Prefuse and all these people. Yeah. So he hit up Lojero, Andrew Lojero, who you know was organizing the party. He was like, hey, can Kev stow away in the van? Because they had like multiple vans going up. So then that day, you know, I show up at, I forget what time, right. 10 a.m., right. you know, we're all supposed to leave. They don't have it together. So we don't end up leaving for several hours, okay? We're like three hours down in this L.A. loft uh, uh-huh. downtown. Uh-huh. And Flylo's there. And that was, we talked for hours that day. Yeah. And then on the van ride up, it was me, Gaslamp, and DJ Nobody sitting next to each other. In the back of this van, smoking weed. Had you met Gaslamp before? I'd, he played at the Alpha Pup party a year prior. So oh, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. knew Gaslamp loosely. Right. So then, but but we just clicked. That was the moment when that part of it clicked. The three of you. The three of us. Yeah. Like, all right. Well, also just to hear that you and Flylo talked for three hours is kind of like, so he must have seen something in you as well, because I feel like he doesn't talk to a lot of people for very long. Well, we were becoming, that was the genesis of our friendship. Yeah. You know, that day. Yeah. And then... 
so then I remember, so the next day, I do my gig, not at their party. Uh-huh. And then the next day, me and Elvin and Mia Doitad are driving back. Uh-huh. And Elvin's going off about how great Gaslamp was, mm-hmm. how dope that dude was, how mm-hmm. it was the best set of the night. Mm-hmm. I was like, no shit. Okay, dope. So we all get back to L.A. This is over the summer. And then I want to say it was a month later, I go to a birthday party at the airliner. So this dude, Nathan Nice. I don't even remember this guy at all. I do. I vaguely do, yeah. And then that was my first time there. I was I was like, whoa, this is dope. I, I think on the way home, I called Edit. Yeah. You know, again, we'd, we were putting out his record on right. Alpha Pup. Because he was one of the original. From Concrete. Yeah. But so, also he was one of the original residents at, at Lowen. Lowen. Yeah. So I called Ed. I was like, dude, I found the spot. I think it might be dope to do a club here. Are you in to help? you know, do a club with me again. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, man, you know, and I was telling him how big it was. Then he, he was like, let's go down there. So we went down together and it was, you know, at that point we're like just me and him on the balcony, on the patio. And he's like, man, this is a big spot. We're going to need more people. Right. Who should we get? And I immediately was like, you know, DJ nobody and gas lamp. Yeah. I think that'd be the shit. Cause I just, you know, hung with those guys. He was like, yeah, dude. Okay. Dope. So that was the original four. We brought, no can do on like about a week before the first one right but the original idea was the conception was those four because you had signed him as an artist on alpha pub right? right and that seemed like conducive to co-promoting it that way like, yeah just kind of having a place for him to rock yeah, right absolutely. right totally yeah. totally and um so how, how did it go the first one slow really i think we had two mex headline i mean when you look at the first flyer you know i we booked flying lotus for the second one. Yeah. So the, when, we, when we launched it, we had the first four nights already done. Yeah. When you look back, it was like kind of prophetic because it was like Flying Lotus, Daedalus, a lot of the people, Kutma. Right. You know, uh, well, and that's, Glitch Mob, you know, the guys yeah. who basically formed the, the fabric for what ended up right. happening. So even before that, I remember like DiBiase telling me about something that they used to do at Little Temple or something. Sketchbook. Sketchbook. Yeah. Did you used to go to that? I never, just... been, I never went to Sketchbook. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just I'm, I'm just wondering, like, when you started Low End Theory, did you kind of have this curation of like, yo, there's this little there's this little murmur that I see happening that I think is going to grow? Or, or was it just like, I'm going to trust the opportunities that the universe presents to me? It was more like just doing another club like that I knew how to do. Yeah. Um, I want to say our headliners for the first month were all rap backs mm, supported like by yeah you know like who two mechs the yeah. first one yeah. it was scarab the next week right i mean and but then then it was like but flying lotus was opening for scarab yeah or glitch mob was opening for two mechs and so that became no such was he was he in the early he, ones not not in the first four but we got him early on yeah you know or like toki you know th- those were acts that we, we all that we definitely booked in the first year yeah and then and i want to say it was maybe a year into it is really when we started doing the beat invitationals when yeah. that, when we were finding our footing yeah. of like, okay, this is what it's going to be now. You know, one that I drove down to, or I, I like came down to LA for it. Cause I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. It was like probably a year before I moved down. Um, that was like enormous. And I was like, damn, this shit is like really something was a uh, Sage Francis headliner. Yeah. That one was like, people were literally crawling on the roof. Yeah, that was one of our first big nights. I mean, that was huge. And, and I had known Sage because I did work on the you know personal, not personal. Yeah, was it personal journals? His first one on Anticon. No, it was the next one. It was the Epitaph record. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, did, I don't remember what it's called, but I know exactly. I did uh, Dance Monkey. So oh no shit. So that you know, um, 
that's, that's how I knew Sage. Yeah. You know, and he had a tough time that night. We didn't have our shit together. Our sound guys back then were crackheads. So it was like, yeah, I felt bad, you know, but yeah. he, 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 uh, he brought a lot of people out, you know, it was enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it gets off to a slow start, but it starts moving pretty. I mean, it starts gaining speed within like the first two years. By by two years into it, it's on. Yeah, it was like fully packed every night. Yeah, or not every night, but yeah. packed enough. I mean, we would have one really busy night a month. Yeah, and then maybe one slow night, and then two medium nights. Yeah, not like today where it's like packed completely right it's just automatic every time and that was an interesting thing watching it being there from i wasn't there at the very beginning but i but i i was going towards the beginning like very consistently and watching these dudes like you're saying like uh your fly lows your daedalus like in you know 06 07 walking into the venue and just being kind of faces in the crowd to where by the time it was like 2009 i remember like i remember um I remember standing by the entrance and and Steve walks in and like the crowd parts like the Red Sea and they look as though Jesus has himself has just arrived and I went like wow this fool has really like he like he's made it in this in this little arena you know what I mean like he and um like I was standing with uh, Avocado who I think you've met he's done a yeah, lot of my of music course, yeah. yeah yeah and th- it turns out they went to film school together and and Kyle didn't know that Flying Lotus was like Flying Lotus and Steve like walks over and like says what's up to Kyle and people around are like gasping like you know you know him and he's like well I mean I think like I think we like lived next to each other in the dorms or something and and I, anyways it was just it's just insane to have seen these people that were just dudes become such huge acts and now Grammy nominees and shit. It's crazy. Yeah, man. Uh, and, and you, you know, you played a huge, you were a catalyst of all that, dude. I mean, I try to be, I mean, I, I never take credit for, you know, the, these people's artistry or their brilliance. I mean, my role has been to create this platform. Right. And, um, that, that hopefully, I mean, that, you know, can be considered to be effective. Um, and, you know, to me in my position, you know, it's pretty surreal, you know, to have seen it all, to see it go way bigger than you think it's ever going to go Right. to have a scene that's known around the world. Yeah. Like the quote unquote beat scene. I feel like that phrase was coined because of low end theory. Right? Absolutely. I mean, that's our, that's, that's ground zero for it. So, and- tell, so tell me about it. I remember in the early days, people were trying to figure out how to compartmentalize what low end theory was. And they were saying, initially it was like, oh, you guys are a dubstep club. And you're like, no, we are not a fucking dubstep club. Right. And then, and, uh, and then they were trying to call it all these weird things like warble music or laser, like laser bass. Laser bass. I remember that <laughs> you had all these like weird genre names. Like, how, like, do you remember the moment when, when it just kind of like, oh, Oh, wait, it's like settled on this is beat scene music. I mean, I don't even know if that's what, you know, it ever really officially became, although that's the most what it's known insofar as the scene. Yeah. Right? I mean, right. the music itself. And we purposely did that. I and mean, we purposely rejected any labeling that people wanted to come up with. Like when, you know, Sasha Ferrari Jones came up with laser bass. I mean, we just laughed that out of town, you know, yeah. and. Because we didn't want to be, we didn't want to have an expiration date, mm-hmm. you know. Because I think once you put like a, you know, really succinct label on something, all of a sudden your trajectory is is determined, right? Um, versus what I think it became was more of like this affiliation of artists who can do multiple forms of music, um, who are you know more versatile than than any one thing. I mean, to me. It's 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 definitely uh, uncanny to have 
that uh, you know amount of raw talent coming together in one place and ultimately you know i think what became inspiring to a lot of people down there was the quality of the sound system and the quality of the production of the event that they felt that their art could be you know portrayed uh, properly portrayed and magnified yeah you know so it's like speaking of which shout outs to sam xo who was working the sound for you guys for a long time right yeah no, how did you guys yeah. how did you meet sam i've known sam from way back in the day from celestial era i mean he used to work at beat nonstop. Uh, then he launched his own uh, store in Melrose called Temple of Boom. Yeah. And Sam's old school. Because, you know, I mean, I remember one of the things that a lot of publications used to hype up was there was a spot in the upstairs room where if you stood right in the right place, it was like the maximum base that you guys had planned out. Like, how, like uh, how, what is developing the sound system come up with? Because I know that you're like a total um, – you're, you're like totally – precise uh sonically and like you want everything perfect i'm sure so like what was the collaboration process of deciding what it's going to sound like in there i mean well i'm the one who built the sound system upstairs sam, oh, okay. sam does downstairs oh, okay i mean that was just over the course of years of building it up and tuning it and the fact that you know i approached the sound system like a mastering engineer yeah you know there's not too many you know legit mastering engineers actually actively involved in live sound yeah so you know i try to apply a very you know scientific approach um to the sound system up there of you know very low distortion uh very relatively flat response uh, at least on the mids and the highs and just having a really you know i think part of being an engineer is your ability to articulate frequencies mm -hmm. and you know when i can go into a room and hear listen to what you know a song i've heard before and know what the problem you know know how it needs to be eq supposed to sound yeah. how it's supposed to sound yeah. for one and number two how to then communicate that in the language of science right like all right this right here what i'm hearing needs to be i need to be ducking at four kilohertz to you know three decibels down at four kilohertz with thin q um let's see what else 8.5k needs to get notched out you know, 1K needs to get notched out and we need to do another bump at, you know, 200 hertz. Right. You know, being able to hear music and did that be the feedback? Yeah. Um, that, that to me is, you know, what I've spent many years trying to develop and, you know, ultimately I like to think results in, in a very different listening experience. As far as the scene goes in, in low end, well, first off, let me preface it by saying, obviously, like Tom York has called it out as an influence. Erica Badu, like a ton of people have have become a part of this thing that you, that you were a catalyst in creating. Was there a moment where you started to realize, like, oh, all of a sudden, this is this is bigger than just some guys getting together every Wednesday, and all of a sudden, it's become an international influence? Like, was there was there a thing where where you were like, damn, this is a real moment? I mean, maybe the first big LA Times piece in 2009. Yeah. When we're like on the front of the calendar section. I mean, that was, you know, unprecedented at that point for the press. And then press caught on. I mean, you know, we've been riding a press wave uh, ever for, since. For ever since. Yeah. yeah. Now, Rolling Stone. I mean, every, everywhere. Yeah, everything. everywhere. Seven yeah. years. I mean, when Tom York played, I mean, that was the DJ set heard around the world. I mean, that right. was like. That was what got my. I got a photograph published in Rolling Stone because I I'm ran saying, into you on the stairs. I mean, that was like the front of. Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, yeah. and me. I mean, that was huge. That was it huge. Was crazy. And well, and then Erica Badu was only like a couple months after that, maybe. Yeah, James Blake. Right James, after oh that. yeah, James Blake. DJ said I shot all of those. I man. mean, Idris Elba. I mean, it's been it's been crazy. Yeah. yeah. Are there artists that you've gotten to work with because of Low End that that you're like either you never thought you would or that you're so excited to have been able to work with? I mean, sure, Mr. Well, you know, Mr. Wazo. Oh yeah. 
Um, and of course, all the brain feeder guys, Thundercat, you know, Fly Low. Yeah. Run the Jewels. Because you know, oh, yeah. I met LP from when he played Low in Theory. That's right. I mean, it's been, that's so much of what I've been able to do in the studio has been based upon the relationships I've made down there. Going back to what I was talking about of like, does it ever get easier to define what a life's goal is? Do you feel like once low end really got started, like, did it feel like you found a purpose perhaps like more so than in, in the past? Is there like clarity with it? I mean, I always knew I wanted to do music. Mm-hmm. So this was just an, an instrument for that. And I, you know, I came into this with very modest expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, I, di- I didn't, I never approached the music industry of like, all right, I'm going to conquer this or, you know, I'm going to be rich. Definitely not. I mean, you know, you do independent music long enough, you realize real quick, that's not on the you know docket, but right. it's, it's just about, you know, doing what you love, feeling passionate about it. And that's luckily what I'm able to do with low in theory you know, and all and everything that's affiliated with it. How do you stay so consistent with it? Because just trying to do this once a week, sometimes I'm not able to balance it. And I maybe only put out one episode a month sometimes, but you for what you're in your 10th year now about, yeah, we're in our 10th, we're going to be turning 10 in In October, October, right? So technically we're in the 10th year. year. So I don't think you've missed a Wednesday really. Like maybe Cal Ripken. I've missed five maybe Yeah, for like the birth of my kids and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you stay inspired every week to make a lineup and to, and to get it together? Like what keeps it going for you? I mean, I have a strong family. I feel like my family is my primary source of inspiration and I've never had a problem being inspired, staying motivated, staying motivated. Yeah. I mean, I was slept on for many years in the beginning of my career. I think that's good because, you know, it, it, it prepares, it makes it so you're not taking things for granted because when you do reach a certain threshold of success, you're going to mash hard yeah. to keep that Yeah, because you remember what it was like to not be there versus you, people who, you know, blow up right off the top. Do you ever, and this may be a weird question, but do you ever let, uh, old spites inspire you a little bit like people that like moments where you're like oh th- this fool is sleeping on me do you let that inspire you of like they're not going to sleep on me anymore to a certain degree yeah but, you know these days you know i try not to operate from you know a, a point of negativity right. I mean, in the early i've already snuffed out a few people you know what i mean so it's like i've already experienced that and yeah. won those wars and you know it's and i don't get I didn't get the inspiration from that. I thought I would. Right. Uh, you know, if anything, you regret, you know, things like that. It just comes down to, you know, I, I think the kind of motion the, and the forward motion that, you know, you ideally want to be operating with is positive. Right. Motion, right. Know, at, at this point, you're really only competing against yourself. I think that's the point. I think everyone's that way. Yeah. You know, that, that that's if you're doing independent music, you are your own competition. Right. And, right. I mean, yeah, back in the day, there was people I was like, why is that person more successful than me, you know? And right. That, 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 that mode of thinking is ultimately self-destructive. Absolutely. You let into a good segue there. You talk about how this is important for you and your family and like, or like how you have a strong family that helps you stay motivated. Well, um, how long ago did you meet your wife? 2001. In 2001. So right when kind of things are starting to crack with Celestial then or what? It was the end. It was the end of, of that. Yeah. Did she, you, was, she was arguably kind of what... <laughs> She was the Yoko Ono? Yeah, no, kind of. It was like, you know, Celestial was 
becoming a real pain in the ass. We had this lawsuit that was happening, and I was like, man, I'd rather just kick it with this chick than right. deal with these guys all day. You know? Right. Did you know from, from Jump, like, that was it? Like, she was the one? I, I felt like that, for sure. Yeah. 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 And um, how long was it until you guys got married? We got married August 8th, 2008. Oh, okay. So you guys, yeah. 808-08. Hey, oh, and because uh, I'm Chinese, I'm half Chinese, so again, that's a very lucky day, right? Uh, you know, eight is, uh, but also eight away drums had multiple the you meanings, know, connotations, mad meanings. Yes, um, yeah. But you know, we had our first child in 2007. Oh, okay. oh, excuse me, 2008. My daughter was born earlier that year. My daughter was like three months. She was pregnant in 2007. Yeah. So, you know, I have three kids now, you know? I mean, here's the thing. You've always been, like, the OG to me that I look up to and kind of – so, like, you've always seemed, like, wise and you have wisdom to be dropped upon or, like, to drop upon people, whether you feel that way or not. So I guess at the time when, like, you guys get pregnant, were you, like – Oh shit! Or were you like, oh cool, I've been ready for this? Because like you've always seemed like a wise person to me, but who knows? Maybe you feel just as immature as I do. I mean, I thought I was ready. I mean, yeah. you know, the the pregnancy is the easy part, right? You know, it's when they're born. I mean, not even when they're born. It's like a month or two later. That's when it gets tough. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. when you know, you're dealing with the sleepless nights, and yeah. when you get a second child, that turns it up exponentially. Right. And then our third has been a real centering energy. Yeah. How old is the third now? Pretty new. Uh, yeah, eight and a half months. Eight and a half months. Yeah. Yeah, you guys going to keep going or what? No, I, I think we're out. I'm out the game, I think. Yeah. 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 How do you find time to balance everything, family, work? I mean, you, and that's the thing is you have multiple work angles too because you got, you running the label, you're, you're running low end, you're uh, working on multiple audio projects at all times. How do you? I mean, I got my routine, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, my morning starts. I usually try to get up at least an hour before the kids are up. So usually 5 a.m. Right. You know, I'm up. You know, I'm I'm getting most of my emails done then. Yeah. So I don't. I'm not on email all day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of old school in that way. You know, um, I usually do email once a day, mm-hmm. sometimes twice. At the, you know, it depends. If, if I'm knowing there's some real, like it's going to be an intense something you day. need to be attentive to, then you will. Or like Mondays, usually I try yeah. to not schedule sessions. Right. Um, just because I, you know, those are usually the most business intensive days. Uh-huh. And then, uh, you know, with my kids, it's made it's force the issue of having to be really strict with my scheduling because, you know, I usually take my kids to school, uh, two of them at least. And then I pick up my daughter at three. Uh-huh. So I have to, you know, fit all this stuff in because by the time I'm with, I'm picking up my daughter, that's, that's it for me right. for the day. Unless again, I'm DJing that night or I have, you know, I don't really do night sessions anymore. So it's just about, and then the weekends too, I'm, I'm with my kids the whole time. Right. So which I enjoy more than anything, you know? Yeah. So that really has kind of forced the issue and of trying to cram as many things into between the hours of business nine to two yeah. thirty every day. And, but it's a good thing. You know, I think the, the best thing I've learned getting older is just to not take on too much. Mm. I hate that feeling of being overwhelmed or, you know, right. And the product suffering because of it. So, you know, I'm really, I've gotten a lot better at just saying no to stuff right. and, and raising my mastering prices and engineering prices to the point where, right. you know, if you're going to play ball over here, it's you know not going to be I cheap. I mean, at this point, you've you got to be pretty confident that the, the mastering uh, demand is not going to dry up for you anytime soon. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, arguably, it's funny. My wife says, you know, that I'd probably make more money if that's all I did. Right. Because of how many people I turned down. Right. And how lucrative it is for me. What have you felt change in yourself since having kids? 
it's been a centering force for me. Yeah. It's been a, the biggest source of inspiration since meeting my wife. Cause I feel like these are all an extension of that you uh-huh. know, love and, and you can approach it different ways. You know, for me, I'm, I'm all in uh-huh. with it. I know that once my first uh, child was born, that I wasn't going to be able to do a touring career anymore. Right. That that was no longer on the menu. Uh-huh. And I know people that do it and they can't, I mean, I don't know. I'm call me old fashioned. I just, I think it's hard to, to imagine trying to raise my kids being on the road six months out of the year. Right. You right. Uh, I don't know if you can really, if there's enough FaceTime or enough phone calls, they're going to take the place of, you know what I mean? And right. I, d- I made a decision that I was going to be there for my kids, mm-hmm. you know, the whole way mm-hmm. I derive power from that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I never see it as like they're taking anything away from my career. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if anything, they inspire, they inspire it. They, they give me what I need to come in here and, and, and do the best possible work that I can because, you know, it ultimately reflects on them. Right. Right. You know? I mean, about three years ago, you started this studio. Yeah. Approximately three years ago. Yep. And before that you had the alpha pub studio downtown. Yep. And so throughout your whole career in music, you've been, whether it be like a recording session engineer or a mastering engineer, like you've known how to do this for a long time. Did you take schooling for this? I didn't. I mean, I just learned uh, on the job, you know, from getting into, you know, production. Yeah. That was my first real schooling on it. Uh, yeah. You know, my old roommate Hive, he was a great engineer. So him teaching me all these techniques and we had, he had this dude he brought on to mix for him, this guy, Scott Wolf, uh-huh. who was one of my early mentors. He used to mix for like Dre and then went on to be Timberlands, like main guy for like wow. the Aaliyah, you know, uh, yeah. era. And that dude would just school us, you know, just how everything we were doing was so wrong and, you know. And a lot of the ideas that he gave me back then, I still use today in mix. And then when we were doing Celestial, we were having all of our records mastered at Capitol by this one guy, Everin Gochnar. He would kind of do these under the table deals for us, yeah. as well as some that were on the books. Uh, and I did about 10 records down there with him. Uh-huh. And after doing, you know, doing 10 mastering sessions with the same guy in the same studio, you kind of, you know, the whole time I'm quizzing him on stuff like, hey, why'd you do that? Or, you know. What you know? What's happening at this part Soaking of the Soaking up game. So yeah, I basically, and then there was a record we needed to do where we couldn't afford it. Our deal with uh, Caroline fell apart. We, you know, I forget which record it was, but then I just decided to try it. Yeah. All right. You know, I'm just going to try mastering. Yeah. Because I've seen it enough times. I got Pro Tools at the house. Let me give it a whirl. Uh-huh. And then, you know, that was probably 2002. So now, 14 years later. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people that are interesting in in engineering at all, whether it be from a beat making producer standpoint or whether it be from an engineering standpoint, like your Twitter is one of the like best little hidden gems on the internet when it comes to like cheat codes and just maneuvers for for mastering. Like those are my most popular tweets. I mean, uh, on social media, you know, that's generally what people want to hear from me the most. Yeah. You know, it's a culmination of, you know, again, over I mean, from production, you know, when I started in, you know, 97, you yeah. know, we're approaching 20 years of doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of things of mistakes I've made in the past. I'm just trying to help people along and, you know, throw some ideas out there. I don't, the thing is, you know, with engineering, you know, there's no one way to do it. It's not right. an absolute science. Right. Um, but there's a lot of like guidelines that you can start from. Right. And that's usually what I encourage people to do. I mean, anything I'm spouting out there is like, hey, this is just a, a one way to do it. 
you know, there's many ways, you know, to skin a cat, you know, it's just about what, you know, having some starting point and having done it long enough and been in enough situations. I mean, my discog is approaching 350 albums or, you know, EPs. So what are some of the most, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say biggest, but like the, the most important to you that you've done? Oh, so many. It's hard to name. I mean, I've done almost every Brain Feeder record that's come out. Yeah, so like all the Flying Lotus records that as people well as hear. Every, every Flying Lotus record since the Warp, his Warp deal. Yeah. Um, you know, Wazo, the last yeah. time we ever Wazo records for yeah. Ed Banger and Brain Feeder and everywhere else. I did the Odessa record, um, you know, endless hip hop records. Bus Driver records, Milo's Bus Driver, last record. Milo's last thing. Bath's records. Bath's. Um, Pokemon Thundercat. Thundercat. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you have like a lot of notches on your belt when it comes to that. I find it so interesting that you didn't have to take any uh, schooling for it because I always kind of, uh, when people ask me advice on stuff, I'm kind of like, yo, you, you, if you are really passionate about something, you'll teach yourself. And that's kind of proof in case right there, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I might have figured it out quicker, you know, if I'd gone to school for it. Um, but I think there's a certain amount of what I do that is based in philosophy, mm. you know, and it's mm. based in my approach. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, one thing about my approach to engineering, at least, you know, uh, mixing and mastering is that, you know, I don't I, I try not to have a sound. OK, I try not to have of, you know, a, a preconceived notion going into it. I feel that, you know, when I'm, say when I'm mastering, right, it's a bunch of songs, you know, I've never heard before. All the instructions that I need to do, you know, everything that I need to do in sequence, those instructions aren't aren't coming, shouldn't be coming from my head. They're from what's in front of you. They're coming out of the speakers. Right. And my job is to take those instructions and translate them. Take your bias out of it and try to present what the artist was doing. Or the music. Sometimes the music has a better idea. Have you ever heard Steve Albini talk about that? A bit, yeah. Because I listened to, I think he was on Marin or somebody, and I listened to him, and he, uh, uh, like, his approach is very similar. He's like, look, man. Like when I'm trying to master somebody's shit or mix it, it's like I, I like I have to like try to take myself out of it. You That's know? what I do entirely. I mean, yeah. it's about for me. I kind of call it like a Zen approach to it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you, you removed your ego, and you're there as an instrument on the behalf of the music mm. and. You know, all the techniques that I've practiced for all these years, you know, kind of become unconscious to a large degree. So Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of guiding myself through with the techniques that I've honed. And usually I'm not improvising a whole lot. I'm not trying new, you know, approaches or new things. I'm going with what I've developed. Well, that's so interesting how laser focused your your ears are at this point, too, because like we, we brought our record into you a couple years ago to get mastered. And instantly you listen to about five seconds of each song and went well this needs to be turned up this much this needs to go down this much da, 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 da. and then the first master was essentially perfect and it was just like whoa he fucking nailed it and the funny thing is in all of our previous records when we've hired mastering artists mark uh, who's much more particular about the sound than i am is like this is terrible this is terrible he's doing a terrible job i should have just done it myself and this time, when you sent over the first master, he was like, I'm about to cry. He's like, this is perfect. And so anyway, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really – it's crazy to watch, man. I think that part of it – I mean it's just a lot of mastering is experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? And doing it over and over and, and getting the negative feedback. Right. Making those mistakes to the point where you don't ever want to hear that. I mean I try to knock it out of the park on the first draft every time. Yeah. And the same thing goes for the quality of work that I'm trying to perform. I'm trying to go A+. Plus right. Every single time. I, I, there's never a session 
even if I don't even like the music yeah. or the music's not connecting with me, I will still try to do the best sounding record I've ever done in my career every, every single time. Right. That level of commitment to the art, to the art of this is what at this point people expect from me. I'm aware of this, you know, I embrace that part of it, you know, versus trying to be like, Oh, you know, I'm just going to sleepwalk through this, which plenty of engineers do. Right. Uh, I think one of the reasons I have, a clientele that keeps coming back is because they know I care. Right. You know, and that they know that I approach it like it was, if, if it were my own. Right. Which, you know, luckily having produced a bunch of records, having mixed a bunch of records, you know, that gave me the, the fortitude, you know, to be able to operate like that versus someone who just only mastered from the day one or just only mixed from day one. You're not able to really derive the connection that these artists have to their music. You know? Right, right. You can empathize with what they're feeling by handing over their baby to you. Yeah, I yeah. know what it is. Yeah, we're yeah. giving birth in there. You know, right. It's totally. like I'm, I'm the one catching the baby. You know. Yeah, for sure. How do you feel about uh, the, how the studios turned out? Because like you, this has been a real labor of love for you. Yeah, you've seen it develop. I mean, this I mean, it's is, been amazing to watch. It, it's been, you know, I feel like I'm never kind of done with it. But you know, I've, I, I'm feeling great. And, you know, uh, in the main room now, killing. Do the main people like jaws drop when the, when they see the main room when they come in? That's, yeah. that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's You're beautiful. supposed to be inspired, you know. Yeah, totally, man. I just want to thank you for letting me be a part of this space and using it consistently. It's been uh, awesome for for just me to be able to pursue my passions in here, and, and and so thank you so much for that, just for giving me that opportunity, but also just for all like the knowledge you've kicked over the years to me, man. It's been very uh, important influence uh, in, in my life and career. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Lee. Congratulations yeah. on a hundred episodes. Hey, thank you, Th- man. Thanks for having me I'm, through. I'm Let's glad keep... that we could got, have the guy in that helped. Uh, manifest all of this let's uh, do another hundred uh, yeah you know? absolutely absolutely yeah. um tell the people where they can find you online uh you know twitter is a good place for me uh, daddy kev yeah twitter.com slash daddy kev um instagram uh dot com slash daddy kev yeah those are my main social yeah. me- medias i'm not on facebook a whole lot but yeah you know low in theory we're the first thing that comes up you can absolutely that, every know? wednesday uh, you're gonna keep going with uh low in theory indefinitely or what do you have long-term plans with it you know at this point i mean we've talked about what are we going to do? Yeah. Is there going to be an end date yeah. that we transition to just the festival or, or a monthly? But, right. you know, where my head is at now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm ready to just to ride this so the wheels fall off. Yeah. You know, I'm down to do this until they tell us we can't do it anymore. Right, yeah. right. Absolutely, man. Um, yeah, like I said, if you guys have any interest at all in home studio production or recording engineering on your own time, definitely follow Kev on Twitter because he's like constantly dropping jewels and I've tagged my producer in uh, an uncountable amount of times on his Twitter about like advice. So thanks, man. Again, just thank Thank you for everything. I appreciate it. My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as intuition. You can find me on Twitter at it's intuition. Follow my man behind the boards, making the shit sound buttery. Ben Shim at I am database based with two S's. Follow us as a unit at kind of neat, kind of neat.net. Everything wrapped up in a pretty package. Uh, subscribe on the podcast app. Search for Kind of Neat. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Leave a five-star rating. Oh, we're going to start a Patreon. That's a new thing. So if you're still listening right now, um, in order to try and just kind of like help us pay the bills a little more, we are going to start using Patreon so you can pledge by the month. If you kick in a, do- a dollar a month, if we can get a thousand people to kick a dollar a month, then all of a sudden we got a thousand bucks a month to help us pay the bills around here. So yeah go to our patreon and check that out the intro has more info i'm recording this a week before i actually make it so 
hopefully that shit goes well. I'm nervous about it. But yeah, um, I want to just personally thank everyone that's still listening and everyone that is uh, tunes in consistently or doesn't and just cherry picks episodes and whatever. Thank you guys so much for these three years and a hundred episodes. I know it took us a year longer to reach a hundred episodes than it should have. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy that you guys tune in and, and I'm happy to have a platform to talk to people that inspire me. And, uh, I'm just so grateful for you guys. And I'm grateful for everybody that tunes into the videos and the podcasts and yeah, without getting too sappy, just fucking thank you for coming along the journey with us for the first hundred. And, and here's to another hundred. My name is Lee. That was daddy Kev. And this was kind of neat. Thank you. Thank you.